Hello and welcome listeners to our podcast. For those who have followed or listened to many of our previous ones, know I like to offer hope and do so through my guest stories on how they have navigated the turbulent waters of grief. If you're listening for the first time and don't know me, I'm Andy Vitt, your host, a grief and loss coach, facilitator, and author of Grief's Abyss, Finding Your Pathway to Peace. And my mission, as many who know me are aware, is to help others demystify grief. Welcome, Dr. Lamia. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You know, it truly is an honor and a privilege to have you with us with such a wealth of information that I'm sure you're going to be sharing with our listeners. And I also want to thank you for taking time out of your day. I'm sure your your clinical practice, the phone must be ringing off the wall. Well, I am pretty busy, but it's always so nice to speak with somebody who uh, enjoys the same topics I do. And a lot of people don't want to talk about grief and loss and death and all of that. It's yeah. a real cocktail party killer. Sorry, I interrupted. Uh, no, you no, you know, I'm so glad you said that because there's actually uh, research on that. Is there? Yes. Um, if you go to a, a party and you are talking about your loved one you lost and you begin to cry and you talk about something sad and how much you miss them, people don't want to be around you so much. Mm. If you If you make a joke about your lost loved one, or say something silly about them just to bring them up, then it's okay. People, people want to stay happy. Yeah. We have this, um, distortion of the positive psychology movement going around, uh, my country at least. I don't know about yours. But oh, yes. <laughs> we're supposed to be happy all the time. Or we're supposed to find happiness or positivity. And actually the, the search for happiness can make you miserable. Uh, because you are do- thinking of nothing else, are you? Yes. Always comparing. Uh, which social media is absolutely the worst for all that, isn't it? Right. People don't really want to, um, according to the, the research that's out there, hear about grief. And, and at least in Western culture, we tend to keep our grief silent uh, to ourselves. And so uh, researchers even don't recognize at times that People hold on to grief for many, many years, even a lifetime, thinking about their lost loved one, and yet one would never know that's what's in their heart and their soul and in their brain every day. Yes, exactly. We've gotten away from the ritual of wearing black, which was a way that people would know and would treat you differently. They would have more compassion and understanding, but we just don't have those those uh, cues anymore, do we, that there's something did, going did on? Did the Scots do that? Black? I, certainly the Sicilians did. I know my relatives were always in black because <laughs> everybody was always dying. <laughs> so they, I just remember it being from the Victorian times. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to have to look that up. That's one thing I really don't know is the origins of wearing, wearing black and exposing that you are mourning. Oh, well, it was interesting because I couldn't find anything to help me through my grief when my dad died. I went to the library. I I didn't buy books online very much in those days. I mean, this was over 10 years ago. We've exploded in, in the grief literature at the moment. All the library could offer me was Joan Didion's book. Well, that was about the loss of a spouse, and I just couldn't relate to it. And that's why I ended up writing my own book. It was sort of my roadmap to to help me. And it was doing my research because I thought, as you know, being British, they the Victorians had a book for everything, etiquette. <laughs> So, so let's go and have a look. And what was fascinating, what in I what I was learning that for a child, because children weren't expected to live very long, your mourning period was six months. For a woman, it was two years. For a man, he because he needed somebody to help with a household while he worked. He could re- remarry after about six months. So yes, go and 
find it really is quite fascinating. Anyway, I've totally taken it. But you know, it's, it's interesting to have that information because if you look at the new diagnosis in the DSM-5-TR and in the ICD-10, 11, uh, whatever it's going to be, 11, <laughs> uh, a prolonged grief disorder, they give, uh, if you are in uh, real grief, uh, you know, difficulty moving forward in your life, et cetera, follow the diagnostic criteria uh, for 12 months for an adult, but it's six months for kids. And that continues to bother me because it's almost as though children grieve for a short period of time and then uh, they're not crying over, say, a lost parent or a sibling or whatever it happens to be. But children grieve forever. I mean, if, if one talks to them, they're they're thinking about the lost loved one for the rest of their lives. If they were very, very close, like a parent, like my parents, mm-hmm. uh, who I lost when I was young. So uh, it it's sort of astonishing to me that we think children get past it real quickly when in uh, fact they don't. Exactly. But that's just their sort of nature. They feel it and it goes and they'll go out and play and then they may come back and they'll ask questions and you give them that answer and they'll go off again. So it looks like they're getting over it. But I'm sure there's the secondary losses that you're alluding to that you, you, if you lose a parent younger, when you're going through graduation your first boyfriend every single birthday or graduation or wedding i i i have a, a client who calls me every time i mean years later after her mother died for every significant event in her life because she is so sad that her mother isn't there yeah the grief comes back up and and that's why in this book i talk about memory and how it works and the book really is about memory and emotions and how they work and interface with loss and sometimes unusual ways, but that if we didn't have memory, we wouldn't have grief. You know, the positive memories especially are what create grief. We we remember when things were different. We remember when the person was there. Yes, exactly. Now, I just want to give our uh, audience a little bit of an understanding of who it is I'm talking to (laughs) because you lost your parents and your husband recently, but you're also a clinical psychologist and a professor at Berkeley Wrights Institute. And you have written six books and they're not all on grief, are they? (laughs) No, but they all have to do with emotion. (laughs) And that is so wonderful. But you what I love about that is you've got the the scientific clinical understanding, but you've also got the compassion and empathy. You've walked that journey. You understand what a client may be experiencing. So I think that gives you a platform in which to sort of close that gap. You're no longer just the the clinical psychologist, but you're also somebody who's walked and can companion them, would you say? Well, I, I like your conceptualization of that, but it makes me think of how um, removed some of us have become from the, the emotion, emotional lives we work with. And it's one thing to understand people intellectually. It's another thing to feel them. Mm-hmm. And, and so much of psychology, psychiatry has been uh, intellectualized. Oh, okay. And, and so we come to conclusions and we make assumptions about what somebody is feeling or what somebody is supposed to be feeling mm-hmm. or thinking or doing. Mm-hmm. And, and yet, and grief is a good example of we've we've neglected what's really going on with somebody. Yeah. Well, when the reason I say that, I I know for me and my clients, when they share something and they look at me, am I a dreadful person to have, be grateful that my mom, after all this suffering, is is now 
dead. I feel awful. And I can turn and say to them, you know, that is a normal reaction. Then I can give them a bit of an explanation, but I can also share my experience why I'm saying that. And I think that then helps. It gives them evidence that they're not necessarily a bad person. It's just they're exhausted from the That's caregiving. An example too, yes. I mean, the the relief somebody feels after a loved one's long illness feels good. And yet you imagine you're supposed to feel bad that the person is gone, but that's not how emotions work. You know, if an emotion is positive or negative, it has nothing to do with their value. It has to do with the way they make us feel and how they motivate us. So we're motivated to be relieved of negative emotions. So we do things so that we will be relieved and we're motivated to have more positive emotions. But that doesn't mean one is good or one is bad. It's just the way we're motivated in life. It's how humans work. Otherwise, we would sit still all the time if nothing like an emotion motivated us. But when we feel that relief uh, upon the loss of somebody, it's, yeah, it's so bittersweet, isn't it? It's it's so mixed. And uh, I could see why someone would feel very guilty with that kind of relief. That's why it takes a long time to really consider the impact of a loss. There's mm-hmm. so much to it. Well, there's so many nuances, isn't there? And your clinical background would be able to explain a lot more of the behaviors, the attachment theories and Bowlby and Warden's, all their scientific research into it. The attachment uh, literature is interesting in grief because, uh, and, um, Actually, all of the literature that has to do with how people connect affective resonance and interaffectivity and how two people resonate with one another. Because when you think of things like a prolonged grief experience, who would have a prolonged grief experience? And why do we think of that as a disorder? Well, we're thinking of it as a disorder, mainly so people can get insurance coverage and get the help they need. But is it a disorder? When one has a, let's say, soulmate, soulmate experiences where people are, are identified with one another and where they're very, very attached and they finish each other's sentences and there's so much mutuality. It's like losing a twin. And if you look at, you know, identical twin relationships, when, mm-hmm. when one twin is lost, I mean, it has a profound impact on the other, but People twin all kinds of ways and soulmate relationships are one of them. And I've, I'm thinking that, and I guess I write about it in the book, that the healthy soulmate relationship, how beautiful if somebody could find that, becomes such a bad thing when one is grieving the loss of a soulmate because mm-hmm. part of our own identity is lost. Exactly. And when we're in a relationship, it seems that We give so much of ourselves and we take on different parts of our partner or whatever the relationship is. Mother, father, you could have anybody with with your dog. Oh my goodness, yes. (laughs) Pet loss is huge, isn't it? They are a member of the family and they weed their way into your hearts as well. Your identity has has been taken away from you. So it's no wonder that you feel so lost because it takes a while to find out who you are now that you're no longer a wife or a mother or a daughter. Can you speak to that? Right. I mean, we, we, it's funny how we use words because we talk about a loss. We talk about somebody is lost. But the fact is, we're the ones who become lost. Exactly, yes. Uh, and it, it does feel like part of us is is missing when we're very attached to somebody. I mean, there's other aspects of feeling lost too. I mean, there's an unusual symptom that comes up in the early weeks of loss. And that is that there's a sense of unreality. Now, uh, theorists have, you know, explained it as people are, aren't, haven't processed the loss or uh, they aren't accepting Kubler-Ross, you know, they aren't accepting the loss, they're in denial. Mm-hmm. Well, they're not denying that somebody is gone. I mean, they're not psychotic. They they know reality. They know somebody died. The, but the fact is, is that the way human memory works, if you have a 
lifetime of memories where somebody is present and then they die, your memory informs you. That's one of the purposes of memory. It informs us and it helps us anticipate and plan for the present and the future. So if your memory is telling you the person is there, but another part of your brain, the reality of the present is telling you the person is gone, it doesn't make sense. So it feels like what we describe as a lack of acceptance, but it's in fact your memory trying to consolidate the information and it can't quite consolidate it yet. It's We have to have enough memories in the present to appease the memory in the past and say, okay, now the person is gone. What, what a crazy example of that. After my, my husband died, my older son came over with his dog and this little dog loved my husband. And he would howl when he would see him. He was so Aww. happy. And, and so the dog came into the house and sniffed and looked around and he couldn't find him. And he stood in the hallway for two hours. Just Aww. waiting. Aww. And he did that the next time. And eventually he got used to the fact that his friend wasn't going to be there. Oh, and, it, and, and he just settled down. But people do that too. Our memory tells us to search, mm. to seek, mm-hmm. to look. Mm-hmm. And so then we have these crazy symptoms like we see somebody walking down the street and say, oh, that looks like my father. Yes, yes. Or, or something in the distance or uh, something happens. A hummingbird is in the window and we say, oh, that must be my lost loved one paying me a visit. Mm-hmm. Or a feather on the road. Our memory sort of helps us put together that the person is still here. Okay. I was going to ask you about that because so many people will that I've come across will say uh, they just long for dreams. I wish I could dream about them. I wish they would visit me in my dreams. Is that the same sort of thing? Um, You mentioned the Um, signs. That's that's more of, uh, I would call longing and yearning. And and yes, the, the seeking that's involved comes out emotionally as longing and yearning. Um, yeah, wishing to have, wishing to have a dream about the person somehow wanting one more moment. There's a common, uh, sentence people say, I, I wish I could have had one more conversation with them. Yes, yes. I wish I could have said goodbye, but those are only just moments in a lifetime with somebody, mm-hmm. just moments. And we're really looking for one more moment when, in fact, that's not what I mean, people think they need closure. So they want that last conversation. But it's not going to give you closure. I was going to ask you about closure because you hear so often on, on the TV, well, if only this person was convicted or if only if the body could be found or only if I knew why the suicide had happened, I would have closure. But it doesn't work like that, does it? It, it doesn't, but we try to fool ourselves into thinking okay. we would have closure because the emotion uh we think would disappear. We would have the relief of the constant emotion nagging at us mm. of of whether it's the longing or the anger or whatever people feel in various situations. Mm-hmm. They would sense some relief. Well, how long is that gonna last? Not very long. Before. So it sounds like dealing with the emotions before moving on and bringing your loved one with you, is it? It's bringing your loved one with you. And you can't move on without bringing your loved one with you because emotional memory doesn't disappear. I mean, none of us want, if we have dementia or something, but none of us want that. Yes. So, So what do you do with all those memories? Real closure would mean you can close the door to memory. and. We can't do that. That's not possible. We mute memories. We mute them by living on and having and collecting more memories. Mm -hmm. 
and bringing the person along by introducing them to to where you are in your life. This is what I'm doing. Um, That would probably explain why my mum loved chatting to this photograph that we'd given her of my dad. She would kiss him every night and she would tell him off during the day and she would say good morning. And that may sound crazy to somebody. No, it's not crazy she's, at she's all. not accepting the loss. That's, that's how she Yeah. That she has the memories of him and, and she could talk to the photograph and she's using her memories to bring him into the present with her. Oh, that's, that helps explain that. I, I mean, I just thought it was a beautiful way for her to sort of work with her grief because she was very British. I will cry tomorrow. <laughs> That's how I she- had a patient whose, whose husband died and, and during the first year after his loss, uh, she, she started doing a lot of social events because he hated social events hated mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. would not go. So she didn't go. So she started going to them and she had fun. And one, one holiday... She went to a large gathering and had a grand time, came home, looked at his photograph and said, you jerk. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, beautiful. (laughs) She had deprived herself. She didn't have to. She could Mm -hmm. have gone, but didn't. Uh, She was being loyal to him, I suppose. Yeah. Sometimes that's a, a relief for people, too. To be able to sort of share possibly what, she couldn't say when he was alive. But as with um, your mom, people live on through our memories and we can still communicate with them. They're static images, of course. Uh, they don't grow along with us, but we can grow from, from our knowledge about them. In one crazy example, if you want a crazy example of that, is about growing from a lost loved one. Uh, my husband, actually died as I was completing the final edits for this book on grief, the week I was completing the edits. Oh, no. And so they let me hold on to the book for a while to say a few things in there about him. Mm-hmm. But talk about bringing him with me. Uh, I was I was a few weeks ago reframing a, a door. It's a long story, but I was reframing a door. Interesting. <laughs> it was a big job. I had to go and get um, some some lumber. And so I go into this huge Home Depot store, which is just too overwhelming for me. It's overstimulating. But my husband loved stores like that, like Home Depot and Costco and big warehouses. Mm -hmm. So, okay, I'm in there and I get to the one by four by 96 pieces. (laughs) I have in my mind that he would look through every single piece to pick the best once. And do I just grab a couple and go because I want it out of there? Or do I look through every single piece in this big pile? So I thought, okay, I'm going to look through every single piece, which I did. And I found the best ones and I, I went off. And I also thought, you know, as I was constructing this thing of how we would do a lot of do-it-yourself projects together Mm -hmm. and how much fun it was and how much I would laugh because he would inevitably be cursing because something wouldn't be right. <laughs> exactly, yes. And he was with me, you know. So in that way, I learned uh, to be patient. Uh, even if I didn't like the setting, to pick out the right wood, to use the right tools. I mean, that was all him in my mind. Isn't that wonderful? So he was actually there with you as you yes. constructed this this door frame. That is beautiful. Were you talking to him? Oh, no, no. no. <laughs> Thinking. But yeah. Every once in a while when something didn't go right, I would kind of laugh <laughs> to myself and think about him cursing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm doing, I understand why you did this now. <laughs> right. Oh, my goodness. But, but we can learn from, from people we have lost, you know, if we pay attention to who they were and uh, what their values were and uh, what they wanted, what they would do. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? I know people often feel that they've got to find meaning. This seems to be the new thing. Got to find meaning. Got to find meaning. Oh. 
Okay. What I'm would groaning. you like? To- <laughs> I'm groaning because so meaning making is interesting, and yes, it is a it is a new thing, a big thing now, and that is to make some meaning out of the loss. For example, if um, your loved one died of cancer, to do something for a cancer organization or to start something or to work with children who have cancer, to do something that gives some meaning around the loss and provides some meaning in your life. Well, I think that's a nice band-aid for a while, but I don't, I don't think it, it really helps in the long term. It's like redemptive stories. You know, we want everything neat and packaged and tied with a bow and to come out from our losses and succeed and everything to be okay. Uh, we came out the other end better. Mm-hmm. Um, that's great, but that doesn't always happen. So I think instead of making meaning out of the loss, we have to make new meaning in our lives. Yes. And, and find meaning outside related to the loss or not mm-hmm. to find some meaning in our life. If we, if we invested so much of our time and identity and uh, love and compassion into this other person, where are we going to put it? And where is it? Well, it takes a while, but we find it. Yes. Is that what you mean by when you say uh, giving grief a purpose? No, that's a, a little a little bit different. I mean, it's related, but okay. it's, it's giving it's giving our lives a purpose. Giving our lives a purpose, okay, a new purpose. Yes, yeah. to take to take our grief out into the world because it becomes a part of us. It becomes a part of our character, our personality, our history, and to find what we want to do. Whether it's meaning, finding meaning in people or a project or uh, some endeavor or in just what we do or we're doing every day. Mm-hmm. We're doing it without the loved one, which alters it. Exactly. Like what are the barriers? Is it people that insist on jumping to acceptance before they've worked through the grieving process? Um, we've talked about acceptance and closure. or not wanting to find new purpose in their own lives. The the other uh, buzzword is working through. Yes. Working through, and then we come out the other end and we work through our grief. I I think we've done people a great disservice with words like acceptance and closure and working through because we don't work through something and then never feel it again. And so maybe five years later, somebody will feel this wave of grief hit them. Mm-hmm. Uh, about their lost loved one because a memory pops up from an experience they're having. Uh, and, and they'll say, I didn't work it through. Or maybe I should go back to therapy because I didn't work it through. Mm. Well, that's not how it works. I mean, we will spend the rest of our lives with grief being activated because whenever there is something in our life, in our environment, in our imagination that activates a positive emotional memory we've had about the person we lost, and it's usually the positive memory, we will feel grief. Mm -hmm. We'll feel sad because of the positive memory. Mm -hmm. Now, what we have to do is remember that the memory that came up because we passed a certain restaurant or somebody mentioned something, the memory that came up was positive but we feel sad because, or distress or anguish because the person isn't with us. But we have to remember that the memory was positive and to remember the memory. Rather than that we're lost. We lost. That you have that loss. That makes sense. Because you hear so many people say, I can't go to that restaurant. I can't drive that way. I can't visit this because that's what we did. And it's a reminder. So they they don't want the memory activated, but they're not realizing that the memories are positive Mm -hmm. and that they could focus on those positive memories. Mm. Of course, they're going to feel longing. Of course, they're going to feel sad. The bitter sweetness of loss. Yeah. But people forget about the sweetness. They feel the bitter part, the part that stings. 
And that's the part that they don't want to turn and face. They'd rather push that away. But what I'm hearing you say is that if they could just remember the positive of the good times of visiting the restaurant or doing that activity, then it could actually bring them a little bit more joy and help ease. It's almost as it if... It may the, take a while before it, they could, um, say, go to that restaurant yes. or activate that memory. I, I think people have a sense of timing. I mean, it, initially, it's so raw. Yeah. You don't want to activate a bunch of positive memories because you'll just be miserable. <laughs> but but then as time goes on, for example, um, I think I use this example in the book too. A, a, a patient of mine uh, was, was very, very sad one day and, and said it was her sister's birthday. Mm. And she had lost her sister years before. And she just kept saying she was so sad. And so I asked her what was something really positive she did with her sister. And she said, we always had fun going out for mint chocolate chip ice cream. <laughs> and I said, well, I think you should go today and get a mint chocolate chip ice cream cone and think about your sister and the happy times. Mm-hmm. And so she did. She was really glad she did that. You know, she came back the next week and told me what she did. And she said she got to think of her sister in a happy way rather than focus on the loss. Yes. And I think that's what so many of us do, isn't it? They feel almost guilty if they're not focusing on the loss and almost guilty if they feel joy in their lives because who are they to feel this joy their loved one has died? Is that the same sort of thing? Yes, in a sense. But we want to be able to do both. We want to have that flexibility. If you're having a conversation with somebody and you're talking about uh, uh, somebody you lost, it's okay to be sad and even shed tears. Yeah. But then you pick yourself up and you keep going. Yeah. Because you could feel anguish one moment and enjoy the next. Mm-hmm. Or to say, oh, your father would really have liked this. And and that may bring a smile, but it also brings the sadness. We could have both. We, yes. we don't have to be afraid of what we feel. But some people think if you process the loss, you're not supposed to go there. Exactly. So is is it part of our non-education about our emotions? Because to me, we're always, we have to have emotions. That's what makes us human, isn't it? Well, I think it's part of the non-education of psychologists and psychiatry. Oh, okay. That we have directed the public to to believe that you process loss. I mean, even though Kubler-Ross has been refuted for 20 years in thousands of research papers, People still believe there's stages of grief, you know, the denial, anger, anger bargaining, mm-hmm. all of those. So those that doesn't exist. I mean, we go through those at various times. We have waves of grief, as we remember, but we don't process loss and get over it. Freud actually was to blame before that uh, <laughs> because he was writing about narcissism. And mm. at the same time, he wrote Mourning and Melancholia writing about grief and people who who had severe bouts of, of grief. Well, he put that together with the narcissism. He believed that people who had melancholia had some serious narcissistic injury in early, early childhood from a loss, and that's why the later loss caused such melancholia. And And he was constructing that theory of narcissism, so he just used that. And then his daughter died about uh, I guess, 20 years after that. And he talked about, oh, it was less than 20 years, maybe 10 after that. And, and he was talking about how I'm sure the grief will follow later. Or, But it was so intellectualized. It was like he felt nothing about his daughter dying. Mm-hmm. But then a few years after that, his grandson died. And Freud went into a real depression about that. Mm-hmm. And there's letters that he has written, had written to various colleagues of his and friends that basically said he's just he's not the same anymore he's lost the joy in life and this was even years after his grandson's death because mm-hmm. he was so attached to the little boy mm. and then we see the real grief 
Yes. Yeah. Um, and then he talked about the endlessness of mourning. Mm-hmm. So he finally acknowledged it. You got there, but people don't know that part. They only know the part of you process it and get through it. Yes, exactly. And if you don't, you must be sick. You know, something must be wrong if you can't process it and get over it. Mm-hmm. And that's so wrong. Well, I think you mentioned earlier that we're so disconnected from ourselves. Is that potentially because we're all in our heads and we're attempting to think our way out of what it is we're feeling when our emotions are actually a full body experience, aren't they? Exactly. Yes, we do try to think our way out of it. And so we construct these theories about how we grieve, what we're supposed to feel, how we process something. And it's removed from the reality. Uh, If you ask anybody who's had a very, very significant loss in their life, if they still ever grieve or if they think about that person, they will acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. But it's silently held. As though we're not supposed to expose it to the rest of the world or we're supposed to process it and get over it. Mm -hmm. But people keep those thoughts to themselves, which is quite sad that we're not sharing that stuff in the same way if you see a friend who had a a loss even 10 years before if you remember something about the person they lost to mention that yeah and then you'll see instead of do you still think about them or how how are you Mm -hmm. no instead to engage in bringing the person to life again yes and how you carry them with you yeah, mentioning the person's name rather than just ignoring the situation. Yeah, for sure. I wanted to ask you if you could explain to our audience a little bit of the science behind the bereavement process. I find that when people can understand something a little better, it makes it easier for them sure. to to, to grapple with or to experience. I don't want to say you move through, say work through. Move through. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. We've already, we've already poo-pooed those. Well, uh, I think there's two ways to go with that. And one is the realm of, of emotion and the other is the realm of, of memory and how memory works. When you think about grief, you know, what is grief? Is grief an emotion? Well, we think of it as an emotion, but it's actually, it's certainly not a core emotion. Grief is a combination of emotions. It's a combination of distress or at its extreme anguish and other emotions such as anger, uh, shame. It could be disgust. It could be any other emotion, but it's a combination of emotion. Depending upon the combination, you get what you feel. So let's say you feel uh, you have grief that is distress and anger. And that's where people say, I'm in this anger stage of Kubler-Ross's stages, and that's not true. And so they're agi- they're in an agitated depression of sorts. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting one is when you combine distress or anguish with shame. And there is an element of shame and grief that people really, really don't understand. We usually think of shame as such a toxic emotion where it makes our whole selves feel bad. But there's an aspect to shame that uh, is a separation response. It's where when an interpersonal bridge is broken, mm. we experience shame. For example, say a woman is dating somebody and really likes them and one day gives them a call one evening. And he doesn't seem interested in talking. Mm. That's shame. The wince or the jolt to the self where Mm. the connection isn't there any longer. Mm. But but the funny thing that shame makes us want to do is it motivates people. The emotion motivates people to restore a connection. Okay. That's where we get the seeking in grief, the seeking and the longing and the yearning. We seek. And that's why, like, when people have breakups, they know they should not go back with that person, but mm-hmm. they call them anyway. Mm-hmm. 
or they seek them out or they think about the good things and contact them. Shame of disconnection makes us want to rejoin and reconnect. Mm. It's just how the emotion works. It's really, really complicated, and that's a short version. I was going to say that sort of explains how we've evolved as a society, isn't it? Because if we didn't have that shame emotion that gave us that ability to want to connect, then, you know, we lived in tribes and we needed our tribe, didn't we, for our own survival. So I could see that as perhaps it's evolved and yeah, shame. shame. Shame maintains a social bond. Uh, I mean, socially, shame is good because it helps us do the right thing to save face. Mm-hmm. And it serves so many purposes. All of our emotions serve those kinds of purposes. Kind of like if we didn't have disgust, like if we didn't get disgusted from certain tastes or smells, we would be poisoned. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they all serve a purpose. <laughs> and so shame is the one that comes in with, with um, connection and broken bonds and restoring those bonds. Now, throw in our memory functions. I mean, Endel Tolving said there were, he found 256 different or 246 different kinds of memory that people write about. Uh, so there's all kinds of functions of memory. But mm-hmm. uh, some of the ones I write about in the book are mainly under the heading of explicit memories and implicit memories and implicit memories being the more unconscious memories. And the one I like the most is involuntary memory because that comes up a lot in grief where all of a sudden some thought comes out from out of nowhere mm-hmm. and we're reminded of the loved one who died from a sensation, a taste or a smell, or mm. a song we hear. Songs are big. Yes. Um, or something we see reminds us of that person. I mean, our our senses are, when you think about sensory memory, we're so fine-tuned in our senses to remember. Mm-hmm. And involuntary memory actually was invented, the idea of it, by Proust, who was not a psychologist. Oh. Uh, but... <laughs> He he uh, talks about it in his 4,000-page book, In Search of Lost Time, that was written in, in the early 1900s, where he's tasting a madeleine and some tea. And he gets this wonderful sensation, this wonderful feeling, and he realizes in tasting the madeleine and the tea some more that it's not the madeleine and the tea, that the memory is inside of him. Mm. It's the feeling is inside of him. And it's part of involuntary memory that the feeling came out when he tasted the madeleine, the feeling of his something in his childhood. And so he coined the term involuntary memory. We call it the Proust phenomenon sometimes. Okay. In, in his honor. But there's, um, it's related to sensory memory in that, I mean, that's what he was talking about. There's another aspect to that too that has nothing to do with involuntary memory that Proust so, so astutely points out that if you taste the same thing over and over and over again, you know, the 14th bite does not taste the same as the first. You don't get the same rush of a sensation mm. because memory is also constructed so that there's pattern matching and repeated events tend to be stored a little bit differently. They match the pattern that gets stored in that box, but it's not new and um, pronounced, it's Mm -hmm. repeated. Well, we do that with people. If we live with somebody for a long time, your patterns match, the patterns match over and over and over again, and you get used to them. Your memory gets used to them. It's not stored as a brand new, different memory uh, that's novel. Mm -hmm. So then when that person dies, we might say, Oh, I should have appreciated them more. Mm. Or I should have told them I love them more times. But, you know, I, I didn't. Well, that's, that's not our fault. It's because our memory gets us used to people. And okay. it's, it's, you know, it's not a bad thing that we didn't express appreciation every time. If somebody gives you the same meal for 30 days, you might express a lot of appreciation the first and second day, but by the time you get to day 29, you're not so appreciative of the same meal again. (laughs) I see what you're saying. So 
memory in in loss uh, appears can be provoked then is what I'm hearing you saying by the senses oh absolutely and often sensory memory picks up implicit memory unconscious sensory memories um, are often we say why am I thinking about that person right now or why am I thinking about that memory right now and usually something has activated a sensation within us mm. and uh, sensory memory is is very powerful you can walk into some place and smell a certain smell and there's a rush of memories yeah oh absolutely i remember as a small child having a bath at my grandma's i mean baths having a bath room was unheard of there was the tin bath in front of the fire wasn't there on a saturday night so this was a treat she would fill it up and she had this uh, rose colored uh, bubble bath that she would allow me so every time i smell a rose doesn't matter what it is my my memory immediately goes to that childhood memory of my my nan so i'm uh, that is a sort of memories i'm imagining you're you're talking about isn't exactly. it exactly and and what's so wonderful about your example is is it demonstrates how we are all so different and so then as we grow up imagine all the sensory memories we have and it makes us different people because we respond differently. And you were talking about the the smell of rose, of, of a rose. Well, I loved the smell of flowers as a child because my mother would grow them. and She had a big garden full of flowers. But when she died, uh, she was surrounded by all of these flowers in the mortuary and it just suffocated me. It just made me And I couldn't stand the smell of flowers after that. I was allergic to the smell of flowers. And and it took, oh, what, 40 years later before I I started, because I, I got to know this woman who owned a flower shop. And would go in there and I loved the flower shop and I, I loved her. And, and so the memory of the smell of flowers became altered. Mm-hmm. So the one thing we do is we do alter our memories as we get older <coughs> and have new experiences. So here I am. I have those reactions to flowers. You have your reaction to the smell of roses. Yes. And think of all the gazillion memories we have that make us who we are what our preferences are, what our beliefs are in the mm-hmm. world. And so this is why people have different religious beliefs, political beliefs, any kind of belief. Yeah. We can fault people for their beliefs. We can only try to understand where exactly. their beliefs come from. Yeah. And it's the same with grief, isn't it? It's yes. as individual as the person um, who's experiencing and all the memories. Would that explain when there's a, a, a trauma hap- has happened and the person can't get over it and they keep replaying the trauma, is the fact that they can't find a match for it, that it just sort of sits? That's right. There, well, there's two, there's two theories about that. One is that they, it, it doesn't match, and that's one of the reasons why it keeps replaying. Uh, it's it's just it's traumatic. Um, we don't get over trauma any more than we get over a loss of any sort, and because there's no getting over it because it's in our memory. Yeah. We can't erase a trauma. It's yeah. going to pop up when there is a match in our environment. But one theory about trauma is that uh, the problem with it and the reason it causes. Uh, post-traumatic stress disorder is because it cannot be integrated. But a newer, later theory, more recent, is that it's overly integrated. It's too integrated. And that's what causes people the pain is because they're thinking about it over and over and over Mm. again. You think about something, the bigger the neural pathway becomes. And so you're flooded with this memory. The trick is to not think about it. Or to try to not think about it. But here we are putting these people in all kinds of treatments and having them talk about the trauma when in fact it's just making the trauma more pronounced. Mm-hmm. So that's the more recent theory. Okay. 
I'm go I'm not going to go into <laughs> to that because that is definitely a talk yeah, for we could talk about we could talk about that all day but uh and I could talk to you all day but I'm going to unfortunately have to see a client in just a minute so that's wonderful we it's could talk a- forever I think I need to have you back because I was going to ask you about your new book. Uh, Grief isn't something you get over, as you've lovingly explained and given us so many wonderful examples. Finding a home for memories and emotions. Yes, the ending is all about um, hope. And that's a whole other subject. But one of the things that memory does is that it enables us to be forward-looking, to time travel, either backward or forward. Okay. And, and hope is forward-looking. Episodic memory is, is part, hope is part of episodic memory. And it's, it's forward-looking. It helps us plan and anticipate the future. And that is part of what we need to do when we have a significant loss, is to remember that we are designed to look forward. Okay. This is the perfect moment then to conclude our interview as we have to let our guest go. Dr. Lamia has clients she needs to see. If you're interested in finding out more about her recently released book, Grief Isn't Something to Get Over, Finding a Home for Memories and Emotion After Losing a Loved One. And it's available on Amazon. You can also visit her website at marylamia.com. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for spending this time with me, going over this and helping our listeners understand it and, and bring that hope that I mentioned. So nice to be with you. If you found today's episode helpful, please comment or like the podcast and you'll be notified when a new one drops. Also, you don't have to grieve alone. Please reach out. I'm getting quite the golden roller decks of people that if I can't help you, I can certainly find others that can. I'm Anne. Bye-bye for now. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.